plan for your life? Do you know where you want to go? Are you looking to be happier, healthier, and wealthier while having more fun every day? Meet our empowerment architect and goddess gardener, Cynthia Bryan, as she engages in energetic exchanges with success experts, bringing you research, innovations, strategies, and techniques to strengthen your life, business, and personal spaces. Be inspired, motivated, encouraged, and empowered. Lend us your ears right here on Star Style. Be the star you are. The party starts now. Power Partners, it's Star Style, be the star you are, so that must mean it is Wednesdays, and we have another Wednesdays with Writers, part of the Authors Guild, where we're bringing you writers and entertainers during the pandemic to help uh, creatives get some publicity, which they desperately need. I'm Cynthia Bryan, and we're coming to you live on the Voice American Network. And today's show is going to be fantastic. Uh, with The book that I've been reading for segment two is Becoming Lady Washington. And this is Betty Bolte, and she's um, a historical fiction writer but most of this is just historic you know is historically correct and it's all about Martha Washington her relationship with George and how she affected the um, the world at that time it's pretty fascinating in uh, segment three we'll be uh, discussing cyberbullying because it's been on the rise especially during COVID-19 and according to the experts cyberbullying is up over 70 percent so what can a parent do to prevent the bullying and provide positive interventions? Or what if your kid is the bully? What do you do? So we're going to find out a few tips um, when uh, we get to that in segment three. So you'll want to stay tuned. The Miracle Moment for today is brought to you by Be The Star You Are. Visit org, And it's a Swedish proverb. Those who wish to sing always find a song. I think that kind of talks to us about what everything is um, in life. It's like no matter what you want to do, if you really want to do it, you'll find a way to do it. Well, here in California, the leaves have been turning. And at five in the evening, darkness drops. It has arrived. And so I go out into the garden. I've been prepping the soil as the sun sets and the moon rises. Uh, Normally, by this time of year, I would have had all my spring bulbs and perennials planted and my lawn receded. But we had no rain until today. And the daytime temperatures have been so warm um, that to guarantee any success in these um, for these autumn chores, you really need to have water. So when it started raining, actually, we got a little bit of rain um, yesterday and then today. And as soon as it started raining, I put on my boots, I ran outside, I put on a hoodie, and I started uh, fertilizing, planting. I've been soaking wet all day. But you know what? I'm so happy because I'm finally, I feel like I'm getting some things done. And so that's great. And we finally have, we finally have water, which is um, a rare commodity here in California. My clay soil was so clawed dry, it really needed amending. And originally I had bought like several bags of nutrient rich soil just at the hardware store. But then I realized that my garden required a truckload. So I had 10 yards of high nutrient amendments comprised of compost, green waste, rice hulls, and chicken manure delivered to replenish the earth before I was going to plant. Now, it's going to take me a lot of time. I've been working on this for two weeks, actually, um, and I still have a big pile because actually today now my my back is killing me. And, um, you know, as the world turns, the leaves on our deciduous trees to reds and ambers and golds, it really is the perfect time to replenish replenish your mulch and enrich your soil. If you have a small garden, you can just buy bags of amendments at your garden center or your hardware store or your nursery. But if you have a large property as I do, it's best to order a truckload. And most bags of mulch or compost are comprised of one to three cubic feet. Now, truckloads are sold by the yard. And so you have to imagine how big this is. One cubic yard 
is two is 27 cubic feet, making a truck globe massively less expensive, although it is very wheelbarrow and muscle intensive. And I got a flat tire on my wheelbarrow and my pump wouldn't pump it up. So I was having to, to lift it by buckets. Now there's a variety of mixtures that are available which include aged wood finds, grape compost, sandy loam, red lava, and fir bark. And everything will help loosen your soil. It will also provide moisture retention, erosion control, and fertilization to landscapes before winter arrives. But be aware that if you're going to use any of these things in containers and you're putting them on a patio, runoff could cause stains. Now, I consider these special soils to be like my best friends in the garden. It's like when you build a house, the strength of the foundation of your garden will ultimately determine the success of your plantings. So besides spreading this mulch throughout my property, my plan is to mow my lawn, water it deeply, scatter lawn seed, cover with a layer of a rich amendment, and by adding these nutrients now, my garden, and if you do it to yours, your garden will be ready for a winter's nap, and then it'll reemerge in spring in full glory. And even though I compost everything, there is just never enough compost, so I do have to buy extras. That's why I had to buy truckloads. Now, I know the East Coast, the colors have been changing for quite a while, and actually, I think in the Midwest and a lot of the coast, there's already snow. So their autumn leaves are gone. But here, the autumn leaves, um, it was much later this year. Uh, usually, they start their transformation in October. But this year, the stunning procession didn't start until this mid-November. Now, there's deep reds that we're witnessing there. And what they are is it's a result of an increase in the sugar content, while the yellows are a diminishment of chlorophyll due to the sunny days of autumn combined with the cooler evening temperatures. Now, most people think that the changing of the seasons is what causes the leaves to turn. And although the chilly nights do deserve some credit for that rapid foliage change, uh, the real reason is that the leaves change color is dependent on species and environment. So Japanese maples, dogwoods, liquid ambers, and some species of crepe myrtle appear flaming while redbud, um, birch, ginkgo, apple, wisteria, and larch, they all shimmer in yellows and golds. Now, oaks change to russet. Chinese pistache herald a pumpkin orange hue. And my personal favorite is to watch the veins on the leaves of my grapevines change from deep greens to multi-hued magnificence. And if you wander the creeks or hillsides, beware poison oak, as it is one of the most gloriously colored vines of autumn, melding crimson, sienna, and scarlet. And it winds and twines itself up into the trees. It looks really pretty, but if you are allergic, as I am, oh, wow, you'll really regret it. So as the days grow shorter and the nights linger longer, the biochemical process paints nature's landscape with a sunset palette. You might want to cut a few branches from your favorite specimens to create indoor autumn displays. I also dry some of the Japanese maple or liquid amber leaves, and I add them to my fall potpourri mixes, and you know, they maintain their color for literally a year. So as leaves fall to the ground, rake them into your compost pile, and then the decomposition will replenish the nutrients in your soil. But dispose of any diseased or bug-infested leaves, such as those that have peach leaf curl, rust, or aphids. As the growing season comes to an end, you'll want to collect the seed pods from companion flowers to attract beneficial insects for next season's plantings. And some of those would include dill, caraway, anise, alyssum, marigolds, calendula, sunflowers, zinnias, hollyhock, and nasturgeon. You can dry them on a cookie sheet, or you can just put them in a plain paper bag, and that'll provide plenty of air circulation, which will help them dry quicker. You don't want them to be wet. So you, if you're going to store them in a paper bag, uh, label them with the name and date, and then you'd be ready to plant the seeds next spring. So the goal is to attract beneficial insects, bees, butterflies, and hummingbirds, and then keep them alive and healthy. 
And to crank up your curb appeal to your home, you might want to include some colorful containers of mums or design an autumn arrangement of gourds and pumpkins at your front entrance. I mean, Thanksgiving is fast approaching, and even if we won't be hosting our normal festivities, our neighbors will enjoy the picture-perfect personality. So discover your nature friends and applaud them as masterpieces. Because as Ralph Waldo Emerson said, a friend may well be reckoned the masterpiece of nature. And I look at my soil as that. So buy soil amendments from the, by the bag or the yard to enrich your soil before winter rains. Visit your local nursery to choose some shrubs, some trees, some bushes with colorful deciduous leaves that you want to showcase in your garden. These are just some of my garden. I call it my goddess garden tips. Deadhead uh, rose blooms to encourage a couple more budding flourishes before January pruning if you are uh, west of the Rockies because our our uh, rose blooming period is longer. This is the time to divide daylilies, bearded iris, and any spring blooming bulbs. You can prune dead branches from small trees or you might want to call an arborist to check larger specimens, especially if you think something could be dying or dead and might fall over during the winter. Fertilize your roses, your citrus, and your begonias. Rake your leaves into a compost pile or a compost bin. Reseed your tired lawns. Harvest your apples. Add shredded newspaper to your compost pile. And the zinc and the ink adds nutrients, and then the paper will decompose. I actually had to shred up a bunch of uh, bills and papers and stuff, and I just added them to my compost. And so that's, that's just adding more good stuff to my soil. Uh, root winter crop seedlings. I planted Brussels sprouts, Swiss chard, sugar snap peas, kale, and I sowed seeds of arugula, greens, and lettuce. And you can throw seeds of a cover crop of vegetables um, to restock nutrients for next season, like vetch, clover, mustard, beans, peas. They're all excellent choices. And um, fire season is probably getting close to over, but you want to maintain all fire precautions around the perimeter of your property and home. And um, also clean your gutters. So the other thing, if you need more help with gardening, pick up a copy of Growing with the Goddess Gardener. It's the first book in my series of garden books. You can find it at CynthiaBryan.com. And when we come back from break, we will be talking with Betty Volte, and her book is Becoming Lady Washington, a novel. It is fantastic. You're listening to Cynthia Bryan. This is Star Style. Be the star you are. I will be back in a bit. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Are you seeking a dynamo speaker for your meeting, conference, or organization? Internationally recognized keynote speaker and New York Times bestselling author and lifestyle coach, Cynthia Bryan, will bring her energetic expertise, passionate professionalism, and ebullient personality to your event. Hailed as an expert in lifestyle, women's issues, self-help, personal balance, leadership, media, gardening, and interior design topics, Cynthia Bryan is a popular empowerment keynote speaker around the world, lecturing to audiences of 100 to 5,000. For rates and bookings, call 925-377-STAR, 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 and visit www.cynthiabryan.com. When you want the best, book Cynthia Bryan, www.cynthiabryan.com. This business of show business is calling out to me. Get started acting or modeling with a consultation from media coach extraordinaire Cynthia Bryan, who has guided entertainment careers for over two decades. Call 925-377-STAR or visit www.cynthiabryan.com. Pick up a copy of her award-winning book, The Business of Show Business, and start living your dreams today. Call 925-377-STAR. 925-377-STAR. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
It's power time on Star Style. Be the star you are with your passion, purpose, and possibility producer, Cynthia Bryan. Now, back to the power party. This business of show business. Well, it is a power party, and I thank you so much for joining in and celebrating with us. As promised, I have Betty Bolte with me. She is the author of Becoming Lady Washington, a novel. She's an award-winning author and editor of fiction and nonfiction books, and she is really known for her authentic and accurately researched historical fiction. This is such a fantastic book, and she's authored like 25 more. So welcome, Betty, to Star Style. Be the star you are. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. Well, I'm excited to have you on. I was really mesmerized by becoming Lady Washington. I am, um, I I majored in history at um, UCLA and Cal Berkeley, and so I just love everything that has to do with history. But I am just so impressed on all the research that you had to do for this book. So this is where I would like to start, is how, first of all, why did you decide that you wanted to to write about Patsy or Martha Washington, as we all know her, and how long did it take to research? Well, um, Martha Washington is our first first lady, and I thought I, I had an um, had an idea of, of writing stories that were about the first ladies. Um, and since she was the first one, it made sense to start with her. And it did take quite a bit of research, but I found a biography written by um, Patricia Brady that gave a, a very elegant overview of her life and, and things that she did. And so I used that as kind of a foundation to then um, build a timeline that I filled out by doing all my other research um, into events of the day, the correspondence of George Washington by going to all the different historical sites associated for the um, associated with the revolution of the went the sorry the headquarters for George while he was general, um, the president's home you know in Philadelphia and in New York because um, that's where George served. He lived in first in New York and then. Uh, Philadelphia. They hadn't. The capital didn't come to uh, Washington until 1800, after George had died, and after he was you out know, of, I, out of I wanted to ask you about that because um, George ha- had a White House. So I was wondering, and I didn't research this at all. Is the White House that's currently in Washington D.C. was that actually named the White House because of George Washington's house, the White House? George never had a house named the White House. Um, that was um, the Custis Plantation. Oh, that Southern was Virginia. the Custis. Okay, that was hers. That was that hers. was her first so, husband's. Her first husband's. Daniel. Okay. Yes. So Daniel Custis's home. Okay. All right. I was thinking that I was. I thought it was George's. But you know, uh, getting back to the name George, so many of the characters then were named George. I suppose that was after George the Third, King George the Third. It was just normal that you would name your child after um, a king or a dignitary. Right. Exactly. That's yeah. how George Washington got his name. So, yeah. Right. Of course. Of course. Well, Martha called George her old man. And you write about that a lot. And I was wondering about that terminology is, is uh, you know, because so many people respond, or, I mean, refer to their husbands as their old man or whatever. Was that something, was that a terminology used in that day? Did it start in that day? That's what she called them. It's in her letters. Mm-hmm. Well, she burned, and, and, you know, um, you wrote you wrote in Becoming Lady Washington that she burned so many of her letters that were correspondence between she and George. The letters that are, still remain, are those correspondence between uh, Martha and friends and family members? Yes, yes. And there are, there are three or five extant letters between her and George, but that's it. They're very short. I don't say very There's one long one where he's explaining why he's been chosen to lead the army, but beyond that, they're just short notes between them. 
That's that is such. Yeah, I can understand that you would want to burn them. Well, it appears from everything that you wrote that they had just a very loving relationship, that they were really, really dedicated um, to each other. And I I know that she she had uh, was it four children with her first husband. And sadly, they died. And she didn't bear any children with George. But throughout all of your research, uh, did you just discover that as well as that they were so dedicated? I mean, she traveled with him to his his um, his sites where the camps where he was with the army. How did you feel about the relationship? You know, that's when you wrote about so much in the book. But how did you feel about it when you were writing it? Were you aware of it before? I, I, when I started researching, I was not aware that she had gone to the winter camps when the army stood down for the winter, um, to the, the winter break to between the fighting seasons at that time. So that was, that was a big indicator to me that she really must have loved him because travel in that, in those days was, was oh, arduous. It's very arduous. I, I mean, reading. she talked about the mud and the potholes and the many days that it, took to get there and and that made me yep. think about the slaves and the servants because she was traveling in what would be considered comfort for those days because she had the means but she also traveled with so many servants and slaves and I I all I could think about is how horrific it must have been for them I mean there was a there was one passage in becoming lady washington where you said that um something like 18 or 19 of the servants had to sleep in the kitchen for wherever it was that they yeah. landed. Yeah. Right. So yeah. They, they, they weren't given, they didn't have much uh, privacy. Right? No, they didn't, but at least they were warm in the, you know, in the winter because they had all that body heat in one room. But yeah, yeah there you go. Yeah, it sounds like it, it was definitely cold. Um, well, the mm-hmm. the Washingtons owned slaves, as did most people then. And but the way that you portrayed him in in the book, um, becoming Lady Washington, it appears that that George and Martha treated them really well. I mean, they treated them more like family. And towards the end, there when they had, um, I have to look at my notes to see what the names of those t- a couple of them were that actually when they got to Philadelphia they used that 6 month period to disappear they were kind of shocked that their slaves would leave them right tell right. us they, martha, many- just, Mar- martha um did treat her slaves like family and she expected right. them to act like family you know <laughs> so it was very shocking to her when oni judge decided to um, run away before they returned to Virginia. It was time for them to head head home to Mount Vernon, and Oni just said, no, I'm not going. But she didn't go because she found out that she was going to be um, basically in, be the inheritance. She'd get, get willed to um, a spoiled was, niece of right. Martha Washington. <laughs> so yeah, it, like, okay. nope, I'm not doing that. Will you explain that's that is something about slavery that is so onerous and and difficult to probably explain too is when you owned slaves then you could will them to your heirs and also um you were writing that if if George or Martha were to free their slaves they would have to pay their inheritance they'd have to pay back the money to the inheritance. And so that was keeping them. And I wasn't really sure what that law was. It seemed very complicated. I think it was very complicated. It, but what it boiled down to was that they were, they were chattel, they were property. And so when, when Daniel died, when Daniel Custis died without a will, then she inherited, she and the kids inherited all of his property. But she only got the a third of it for use of her lifetime, and the rest of it went to her two surviving children. And so the slaves that she she inherited from the will, um, she she would if, in order to free them, she would have to 
compensate the the estate, compensate their value to their to this kid's estates, and that you know their value was significant, and there were hundreds of them. So she didn't have she didn't want to spend that kind of money, you know, and take it that you know. So it, it becomes a financial issue and not not a humanitarian one, and that I don't agree with, of course, but. But that's the way it was then. I found what was very interesting is that when George died, he, um, in his will, he he said that the slaves were to be freed after the death of uh, Martha. But Martha ended up freeing them um, because she was really concerned for her safety, it sounds like, (laughs) because it was probably advantageous if she died. Right, she, and there's a there a was, fire. There was a concern that that they were right that they were just waiting for an excuse, you know, to, mm-hmm. for her to die so they could be free. And so, mm-hmm. and I can see that from I can see it from both points of view, and that's why I tried to write it in a balanced way to show both points of view that um, she she realized that they really they wanted their freedom and they were not willing to wait much longer for it. So that's mm-hmm. why she went ahead and freed them. Mm-hmm. Well, no, and you but did. I, I really, I honor the fact of how you wrote Becoming Lady Washington and showing uh, showing all sides because it, did, it sounded like, you know, um, everybody was happy and well cared for, but the slaves were not free. And freedom is what people wanted more than anything. As you said, they didn't want to be passed on to other relatives and who may not treat them as nicely as they had been treated before. Right. So mm-hmm. she, she grew up, um, she grew up actually, you know, fairly, um, wealthy and she, it seemed from the very beginning, she just wanted to be a wife and a mother and what she met Daniel when she was 15, when she did her first, um, the coming out party. And it seemed mm-hmm. like were the women were just groomed to be wives, mothers, and learn how to take care of the plantation and the estate and household. It it was a big job. It was a big job. They had they didn't have um stores that they could go to and buy things. They had to make everything themselves. So it was imperative for survival that they knew how to not only you know make dinner, but also make medicines for illnesses and and um, how to mend wounds and things like that. So I mean everything um, came down to what they could produce. So let's talk about she the, had to learn a lot. Yeah, let's talk about the illnesses. The illnesses of the 18th century: tuberculosis, yellow fever, dysentery, smallpox, cholera, malaria, typhus, typhoid, diphtheria. Camp fever, which I guess might have been typhus, right? Um, I'm not sure, but it, but it, it there were some things that depending, yeah, yeah. It just seemed I was so saddened. I mean, with all her children dying, and it seemed that so many babies died, and they would say if they could make it to age five, and then what was it, 1793, when the yellow fever caused like 5,000 deaths in the evacuation of. Um, Philadelphia. But what I found so interesting is that the treatments for the diseases and ailments that you describe in the book were often more deadly than the the disease themselves. I mean, they the doctors what they would they would bleed you, um, they would purge you. What was this idea of this the the things that they would do the procedures like bloodletting? That just seemed like that would make you weaker. <laughs> well, the, it would. The, um, the thinking at the time was about balancing your humors. And mm-hmm. so they would use different things to try and reduce the amount of bile, for instance. And that's why they would use a purge or the amount of heat in your system by reducing your amount of blood. You know, so yeah, there was that blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile, right? (laughs) Those are the four, the four humors. But they never sterilized (laughs) anything. I mean, I don't even know if they washed their hands. But it's like it was. They didn't know about germs yet. They didn't know about germs. 
Right, right. They didn't, they didn't know how the yellow fever spread. And, I mean, that's why they put barrels of burning tar out in the road to try and ward off the spread of the virus. But you know, we all know that that didn't work. So. That, doesn't, that didn't work at all. Well, they didn't know that, you know, that different things that there were, it was mosquitoes or, or rodents or, you know, different things like that. And the sanitation, disinfection, cleanliness, none of that was part of life until later in the century. And the streets were just filthy, right? I mean, they didn't they it empty was, their chamber pots? and Yes, they, they did. They, they just, they just put it, poured it in the gutter. And um, it wasn't really until the 1800s that they started having running water available. So, you know, I mean, I, I've read... Um, some early 1800s, like the 18-teens, where there were different places. I know here in Huntsville, where I am, Huntsville, Alabama, the, um, they had running water in the city by by around 1820. So, you know, they didn't know, they didn't have that option in the 18th century by any stretch. It seemed like so it they, would be much safer to live in the country. Because the cities were crowded and, you know, there was just so much pollution and they really didn't know. So in your, you've done, again, you do all this research. I really found, you know, it's, what was the, there wasn't that much, what was the fiction in this novel? I mean, where was, I know you quoted at the back a few things that you just took, you know, some poetic license and, and um, wrote like the the playful horse race between Martha Nancy Burwell um, before she met George. That was one, and um, maybe her trip to Williamsburg when she confronted John Custis was another one. But how can readers decipher what was fiction and what was fact? I mean, it just seemed this just read so nicely, but it reads like very much like a historical biography. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, given that I wrote it from her point of view, that, that was kind of the, the goal, was to have it sound like it was from her. Um, it did. It, it dialogue, sounded incredibly of, like a biography. All of, all of the dialogue and the her, her inner commentary, that's all fiction. That's all based on my interpretation of the surviving letters um, that are there's a whole volume of letters that were that she wrote to her sister and to friends and to um, to other people, you know, not George, but to other people. Mm-hmm. And so, um, it's yeah. So that it, kind of provided the that, yeah. yeah, that provided just the words and the conversation of how she would um, how she would speak and how she would react, etc. Yes, obviously you couldn't have been there for for that, but but the people that are in it, I mean, just how you were able to chronicle I, the amount of characters in this book. I don't know how you kept track of all of the different characters and who is related to who, because again, as I said at the at the top of the interview, almost everybody, so many people were made, named George, and then so many people got named. Um, Patsy or Martha, (laughs) you know, there were just so many different family members. So um, now let's talk, you're writing some other books as well. And now you talked about this is the first book in the First Lady. Is it going to be a First Lady series? I'm still toying with that. I I started writing uh, Dolly Madison's story. and I haven't gotten back to it because I started this other series. Um, but it's still on the still in the back of my mind to write to finish her story yet. And then um, I had a couple others that I'm I'm looking at doing, but I may change my mind about them. So I don't know. Well, you you're you're constantly <laughs> yes, you're well, you're constantly writing, and you're so that makes you moving forward, and you probably can bounce back between one and another, you know, one and another uh, at different times. Was there anything really surprising that jumped out at you when you were writing Becoming Lady Washington? Anything that jumped out about George or about Martha or, oh, you know what jumped out at me is the fact that she didn't like Thomas Jefferson. No, because he attacked George. 
and mm-hmm. uh, she just she had no she had, she had no love left she had, for him after he did that. Right, right. Yeah, that was the that was the end of that, and she never really forgave him for that. Right. Right, because it really hurt George that he attacked him that way. Because they had been, they had been at least friendly, you know. And then he turned on her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, well, he turned was, on on George, not uh, her. George. He turned on George. Well, he she was obviously George's biggest uh, biggest supporter and and uh, biggest cheerleader, and just really right there for him all the time. But the time that they had to spend away from each other must have been very challenging as well. I mean, I'm sure that's why she traveled so much to the camps, but it it also seems she was very helpful to the soldiers and to the other wives when she was um, at the camps. That is, was that something very common in those days that wives and families would travel during the winter months to the camps? Um, I'm not sure if that was normal. I think I think she kind of set the precedent for it um, because mm-hmm. once she did it, then other generals sent for their wives and other officers sent for their wives. And so I, I don't think it was a typical it, thing until she started doing it. Yeah, because I, I, I had never really, I had never really read that a large percentage. But this, it, this was really, it was very fascinating to me that um, that she was there, and you know, I mean, because she's putting yourself in danger. Plus, there was so much sickness in the camps too, whether that was that camp fever or the typhus or whatever it is. So, in of all the research you've done. What do you think is the hardest part of your doing research on these historical novels? Um, the hardest part for me is just making sure that I can verify the source that I'm using and that I can trust the source. Um, there, there were one biography that I read that um, had some conjecture woven in that was inaccurate. And so when I started checking on the details, I couldn't prove it. So... I mean, for instance, the the one um, claimed that Daniel Custis was actually Martha's godfather, and I. But but mm. um, Daniel's father did not like Martha's father, and so I couldn't imagine that Daniel would be her godfather, even though he's a little older than her. Mm-hmm. And so I checked with the Rockefeller Museum. They, they have the research museum at Colonial Williamsburg, and I said, "Is that right?" And they're like, "No." That's not right. <laughs> so, you know, you can't believe everything you read. You do have to... Um, you have to do your homework. Thinking skills. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, well, you definitely did your homework on this one. So, uh, having written 25 different novels now, do you have a next one that's that uh, our listeners should be looking for? Well, the other standalone historical that I released this year is called Notes of Love and War. That's set in Baltimore during World War II. And it was inspired by the correspondence between my parents before, I'm sorry, during and after World War II. It's not their story, but it, but it does include, I did pull some of the elements of their concerns and of their lives into the story that I wrote. So that one was fun. It's set in my hometown of Baltimore. Mm. That's so, you know, it's it's wonderful. I mean, what a difference, you know, World War II versus the American Revolution. You know, I mean, that's it's interesting, the time frame that you're doing. Well, let's give out your website, Betty, so people can visit it and they can find a complete list of your books. They can find any place, any appearances, or if you are doing any talks anywhere, they can subscribe to your newsletter. And the website is bettybolte.com. That's B-E-T-T-Y-B-O-L-T-E.com, bettybolte.com. Well, would you like to just wrap it up on Becoming Lady Washington, a novel? Um, I hope that as uh, people will read her story and get to know her on a more personal level than just, you know, the little picture that you typically see of a little white-haired lady with a mop cap on her head, because she was far more um, than that. She had far more courage, far more love, far more care about the people in her life and about this country, and I just hope people will get to know her better. 
She was such an elegant lady. And I think then the other thing that really jumped out page after page is how much she loved family and how much she loved children and how much she loved having young people around and passing on what she knew. And I thought that was just so admirable is that um, I think if I had that many servants and slaves and politicians and travelers and all kinds of people visiting every day, I'd want a breather. But she just seemed to enjoy every minute of, of all of the things that were going on. So she was quite a lady. And we should also mention is that she wasn't called, they weren't called the first lady at that time. She was called Lady Washington, but she wasn't called the first lady until after her death. Exactly. I mean, we didn't start, I don't remember exactly when we started using the term first lady, but I don't think it was until the middle of the 1800s, actually. Right, but they right. they did call her Lady well, Washington um, because, because of the British role model, that they didn't right. know what else to call her when she was in that position. So that's why they, I mean, he was Mr. President. But mm -hmm. So it worked out. Was, well, thank you, yeah. Betty, for coming on Star Style. Be the star you are. The book, again, is called Becoming Lady Washington. BettyBolte.com. There are many, many, many more books there, and you can find out everything. So, again, Betty, thanks so much. And listeners, stay with me when we come back. We're going to talk about the rise in cyberbullying among adolescents during this COVID-19. So you're listening to Cynthia Bryan. This is Star Style. Be the star you are. I'll be back in a bit. Be the star you are. The star you are. Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. Star you are. The annual cost of illiteracy to American taxpayers is over $225 billion. Help increase literacy, reduce violence, and improve positive media messages by making a tax-deductible contribution to Be The Star You Are charity. A top-rated nonprofit, Be The Star You Are promotes positive role models, produces positive radio broadcasts, and donates positive books to empower women, families, and youth. Be a power partner and join our galaxy of stars. Visit our website at bethestarur.org to make a tax-deductible donation using PayPal or send checks to P.O. Box 376, 376, Moraga, California, 94556. BeTheStarYouAre.org. Dare to care. You are the star. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. It's power time on Star Style. Be the star you are with your passion, purpose, and possibility producer, Cynthia Bryan. Now, back to the power party. This business of show business is called... Well, if you like history, you will really want to pick up a copy of Becoming Lady Washington. I really got to know her, to Martha, who um, George called Patsy. And it's just such, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful look into the history of a wonderful woman, a very dedicated, loving woman. So I just want to talk about uh, cyberbullying because with online learning and boredom from the lack of physical contact with peers, it creates an additional time spent on electronic devices and experts are seeing a 70% increase in cyberbullying among youth since the start of the pandemic. And that's kind of a very scary thing. And while there is a lot of information available on what a parent can do if their child is being bullied, what should parents do if their child is the cyber bully? Well, according to family therapists, there are signs that a parent needs to be aware of when identifying whether their child is cyber bullying someone else. 
Parents need to observe and listen to what their children are doing and saying. If a parent overhears a child talking to friends and saying mean, disparaging remarks about another child, they need to check further to see if their child is engaged in cyberbullying. And some signs are if a child has a history of bullying or even of being bullied, or if he or she is extremely secretive while online and quickly switches screens when a parent is around. So some steps that are suggested that parents can take to curb bullying before it escalates is to try to increase empathy in the kids. Uh, by, if the parents are empathetic, they can help their child develop empathy. So starting at a young age, have your child imagine and talk about what it would be like to be in another child's place. You want to find books to read and discuss examples of children who have certain challenges. For example, you could discuss, discuss how another child might feel who is being bullied or who has had a disability or a serious illness. And then volunteer with your child for various organizations that might help disadvantaged people. So if a parent models being empathetic and compassionate, then their children usually will be. And if your child has been identified and verified as a cyber bully by another parent or school official, it's really important to cooperate in addressing the issue. Unfortunately, so many times parents will just automatically become defensive. You know, it's like, I have the perfect kid. My child would never do that. And they refuse to accept that their child is a bully. But unless you accept it and at least investigate it, you're not going to be able to change a behavior. So parents need to cooperate. The child who is a cyber bully, cyber bully will be enabled to continue a destructive pattern of behavior if you as the parent don't participate. So when asked about should there be a punishment for a cyber bully, is that in order? It's possible that punishing a child who's a cyberbully is only going to lead to more of the same bad behavior, and it might even increase um, the behavior and might even become more terrible. So instead of being angry and punitive, maybe a better remedy would be to show disappointment in your child. Um, when parents get angry, often a child will respond with anger as well. So instead, if a parent can help instill responsibility and compassion in their child by showing surprise and sadness over this cyberbullying and avoid being angry, it can be better. I just know for me, growing up as a child, when I would do something wrong, when my dad would tell me how disappointed he was in my behavior, it would just bring me to tears. I didn't want to disappoint him. But if, like, my mom would be the one who would get angry, and then I would just get angry back. So I think that works with cyberbullying as well. Now, early interventions can equip cyberbullies with the skills they need to interact with others positively. The term, you know, once a bully, always a bully, that doesn't have to apply. So don't think that that's true. Um, bullying is a choice. It is not caused by something the victim said or did, but it's people who bully others need to learn how to take ownership of their own choices. And unfortunately, many children feel that they're entitled to behave the way they do. And in this case, if you teach them empathy, it's going to help them curtail that behavior. So, um, also, another thing to look for is many bullies lack that impulse control, and they might just post hurtful things online without thinking of the consequences to the victim. So it's important to find ways to curb those impulses and make better decisions. And a method of lashing out may also signify a lack of self-esteem, which in turn turns to anger and frustration. So examine the bully's strengths and weaknesses, and that could help determine what areas you could point out the positives, and then we could try to eliminate the negatives. So a lot of times a cyberbully just feels left out of a popular clique at school or is jealous and may turn that anger into lashing out at others. And of course, in the case of extreme cyberbullying, such as a child encouraging another child to hurt himself or someone else, parents really have to take immediate and serious action so we just have to be very careful. So you may need to monitor 
social media, limit uh, monitor screen time, and you might even have to take uh, apparatuses away. So the key is we don't want to have um, cyberbullying in any way. So early intervention is very, very critical. So thank you for being great listeners and allowing me to be with you every Wednesday here on Star Style, Be the Star You Are. Through the end of the year, we are continuing our uh, Wednesdays with writers and entertainers. You can change your life. You can make your dreams come true. And you can find some very good books and entertaining information right here on Star Style, Be the Star You Are. For more information about Star Style Productions or me, please visit CynthiaBryan.com. All of my books are available. I have eight books available for sale. And they make great holiday gifts. And the money will go to Be the Star You Are charity which is bethestarur.org. As always, I want to encourage you, inspire, inform, amuse, and motivate you. Cherish the past, dream of the future, and celebrate today because today is the only moment that we have. And if you choose to read a book this week, think about becoming Lady Washington. And until we celebrate next Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. Pacific, remember that love always wins, kindness always prevails, and smiles will keep us happy. I'm Cynthia Bryan for Star Style, thanking you and encouraging you to be the star you are, be your unapologetically authentic self, and have a wonderful week. Dream, create, inspire, make a difference, and most of all, be yourself and be healthy. Thanks for joining me. We'll talk next week. The star you are, the star you are, be the star you are, you are the star. It's been a pleasure bringing you our life-changing program, Star Style, Be the Star You Are. We have you on our radar as it's our goal to inspire, inform, entertain, and motivate you to be the star you were born to be. For more information, visit StarStyleRadio.com. And to make a donation to the charity, go to BeTheStarYouAre.org. Ignite the flame that burns brightly within. Take charge of your life and coach yourself to success with our dynamic host and empowerment architect, Cynthia Bryan. Every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another serving of champagne for the spirit and a power boost to live with star style. Until we celebrate together next week, be the star you are.